going to be lots and lots of little, little pinpricks here and there that will collectively make it harder, more costly, and less efficient to do business. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, a Georgetown University law professor who teaches international law, national security, and constitutional law. Also with me is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. And finally, we have David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So today for our Editor's Roundtable, we have with us, as always, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School and Corey Shockey of Stanford. And joining us today is David Sanger of The New York Times. And we should begin our discussion with an issue that has really dominated recently, uh, and that is the, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. But I don't want to talk so much about the deal. The deal is done. I want to talk about where it leaves us. How does it change the situation with regard to the U.S. and Iran, with regard to Iran and its neighbors, with regard to how the situation in the Middle East impacts other regions in the world? David, you spent countless hours in Vienna eating soccer tort, uh, Mitch Schlage, I assume, and, and, and following John Kerry around as he sort of hammered out this deal. Um, are you a little surprised that now that it's done, it's so anticlimactic? Well, a couple of observations about that, David. First of all, if you start any emails with the words "I'm stuck in Vienna," you don't get any uh, you don't get any sympathy from from your colleagues. I've discovered. Um, Do you get any sympathy from your colleagues? <laughs> no, any? I would not any on any account, but certainly not for that. Um, uh, secondly, you can get sick of soccer tort. Yeah. Uh, and thirdly, um, when we look at where this deal has left us, you've sort of got two big baskets. One is, where does it leave us with the U.S. and Iran, and are we in a position to build on it to um, put together at least a concordance of interests about Syria and begin to think about a grander bargain? And second, where does, where does it leave us in the implementation of the deal? So why don't we just take those two in order? Um, on the first, as soon as the deal was done, the Supreme Leader came out and said, don't get the wrong idea. The revolution goes on. The Americans are still evil. They're still trying to corrupt us. So there is no larger deal. And then yesterday uh, and, and throughout the past few days, we have seen uh, the uh, president of Iran uh, show up at the UN, give interviews to various people. And what does he do? He immediately steps out and says, there may be some room for uh, the United States, for the rest of the world, and Iran to cooperate. He did not say what that cooperation would look like, but he did say it is now time for there to be a joint comprehensive plan of action with the whole world uh, about uh, larger issues in the Middle East. I thought that was interesting. He opened up some space between himself and the supreme leader. It may in the end mean nothing. 
But, but Corey, you may recall from a prior podcast when we were discussing who the best world leaders were, <laughs> and the supreme leader got a lot of love from the group, even if the group doesn't much like him, for his balancing act and how much he has actually managed to achieve while giving up very little in terms of his sort of ideological positions or his base. Isn't the reality, or is it your view that the reality is that Rouhani is playing the role of good cop as he had all along, designed to open up the flows of capital into Iran, and that it allows Khomeini the space to continue with uh, death to the great Satan? possibility, right, that there's a good cop, bad cop routine going on, and it permits them to probe for possibilities without overcommitting. The other possibility, it seems to me, is that why wouldn't the Iranians want to negotiate on everything after the deal they got from us on their nuclear program? I would want to deal on Syria. I would want to deal on oil prices. I would want a security arrangement for the greater Arabian Gulf. Because, David, as you yourself said in a tweet, I hope the American negotiators want to buy my house someday. Negotiations have been a good outcome for the Iranians, so I'm not surprised that they want to capitalize and make that the model for all future interactions. Yeah, and if those negotiators are listening, I am open to offers. Uh, (laughs) They've not not been forthcoming so far. Do you think Corey's being a little hard on the American negotiators, Rosa? No, not at all. I was actually just thinking, why would Iran bother to negotiate? They do pretty well without even negotiating. On Syria, we seem to be serving as their air force, and they didn't even ask us. So looks good. I mean— I think I think that the Iranians, including the hardliners, may very well be open to a broader deal. Uh, why wouldn't they? They're not crazy. They've never been crazy. Well, maybe they were once crazy, but they're not crazy anymore. They haven't been crazy for a while. Uh, you know, this is a good opportunity for them. Um, they they there are obvious openings for them on Syria on a wide variety of other regional issues. Where, as I said, we're, we're, we, have, we have some common interests. Not all of our interests are in common, but there probably is enough there that I can't see any reason why they wouldn't be open to pushing a little further. I, th- I think in some ways the limiting factor may be uh, American politics rather than internal Iranian politics at this point. Well, that's a very, very good point because um, American politics are the limiting factor. If you go around Europe, there is absolutely no discussion of the Iran deal at all. The, the European view is it was the deal we had to strike. It was inevitable we would get it. It bought us some time. And it's only here that we have seen the polarization between those who say that we gave away everything. And actually, I don't believe we gave away everything in this, and I'll come back to that in a second. And um, those who are overselling it, and the Obama administration did do a fair bit of oversell in maintaining that they solved the problem. My own view is what they did with this is they bought 15 years because uh, if the Iranians indeed stick to the limits that are on the paper, and that's a big if, obviously. I think they will for the first few years, and I suspect they'll, they'll test us. If they stick to it, they're limited to such a small amount of uranium and basically no plutonium that it would be virtually impossible for them to develop a serious weapons program for the first 15 years. And that's not nothing. And that's not nothing. If you bomb, 
you know, you get four or five years. If you kept sanctions on, the sanctions would fall apart. So on that part, I actually think the administration did a pretty good job. It's the post-15 years that's a very big problem. And this is essentially a bet by the president of the United States that we won't know the answer to in for another 15 years that it'll be a very different Iran 15 years well, from but now. Look, let me, let me offer a counterargument. To some extent, my view is that we have the discussion a little bit wrong about this deal and its aftermath. You know, we talk a lot about it in the United States like – um, this is a very big deal because the implications are so great. Um, and I think it's a very important deal because the implications are so small. Uh, because actually Iran has been able to achieve all of its regional goals without nuclear weapons. Uh, Iran has been a giant pain in the neck of the U.S. and the West for three and a half decades without nuclear weapons. Uh, right now, Iran is by far in the strongest position it has been regionally in decades, possibly longer than that, with significant influence in Syria, which has grown a lot recently, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Lebanon, and elsewhere. While, meanwhile, all of its allies in the region, all of its adversaries in the region, the Sunni states, are all declining to some degree for, for a variety of reasons, some of which are their own problem. Now, if you look at this deal in the context of that, and you say the nuclear consequences, while important in a nuclear nonproliferation sense, are not that important in terms of their regional goals. Then you see a deal that also allows them to move ahead with uh, missile programs and other programs in the nearer future that, and provides them with resources to expand the billion dollars a year they're giving to Hezbollah, um, even by little, could have quite, a, quite an impact. And all of a sudden, you've got a situation where things are looking really good for a strengthening Iran throughout that 15-year period before we even get to a question about the nuclear weapons. Rosa, what, is, what do you think of that take? No, I think that's, that, that seems perfectly reasonable. I, and I don't think that's such a bad thing either, right? I, I mean, I think that to me it seems unquestionably better for the world for Iran to have somewhat more normalized relationships with the United States and Europe. It's better for Iran. It's going to be better for us. It's going to be better ultimately for global stability. I think that when you look at the regional dynamics, it you know, the we're one thing we haven't talked about yet is the effect of all of this on the Saudis uh, and the other Gulf states, obviously. But but we have for many, many years obviously uh, been aligned very closely with the Saudis against the Iranians. Um, one rather cynical way to look at it, of course, is that the Saudis fund terrorist groups that they can't control. The Iranians fund terrorist groups that they can control. And if you're going to pick somebody to be working with, maybe you want to pick the group, maybe you want to pick the player that seems to have more control over what it's doing in the region, more control over where the money is going, and more control over its own policies. And, and it's not particularly clear to me right now that there's there's a whole lot of there there in the near future for us to work with the Saudis. And that obviously depends a lot on internal changes, as just as much as, uh, you know, our 15-year bet, or maybe it's maybe it's a five-year bet uh, on Iran depends on what happens in, in, in terms of internal Iranian politics over the next few years. But I also, going back to that 15-year thing, I, 15 years is a long time, right? 15 years ago, 9-11 hadn't happened. 15 before, years before that, the Soviet Union hadn't fallen. Um, a lot can happen in 15 years, and that actually seems to me to be a. I, I think if you're a world leader and you can buy and you can buy 10 to 15 years, that's as much as you ever get. And is it anticlimactic? 
you know, deals that avert conflict are always anticlimactic. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Look, uh, no, no, nobody, I think, is arguing. I certainly am not arguing that uh, reducing the likelihood of a nuclear Iran for 15 years is a, is, isn't a good thing. It's a good thing. But, Corey, as we look at this, and we're trying to look at it in the context of the next 15 years apart from the deal, do you think we're at a watershed, as Rosa implied? Um, the Iranians are certainly gaining economically. They're gaining in political leverage. The Saudis... Uh, have the biggest deficit in their history. The price of oil is low, and it looks like it's going to stay low for a while. They've got internal fighting within the Saudi royal family. They have entered into a war in Yemen, which is a great burden, is not going to have a clean, clear-cut solution, is going to produce a famine with 7 million people uh, that could end up streaming into their borders. Uh, Iraq is getting more and more into uh, Iranian control, at least the Shia parts of Iraq, which puts their mortal enemy a little bit more strategically close to them and weakens the Sunni parts of Iraq. In fact, all the Sunni parts of the region are weaker today than they were yesterday, and they may be ebbing. We may actually be seeing the end of the era in which U.S.-backed Sunni regimes in places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt um, uh, had a had a moment of preeminence, and we are entering an era in which the Iranians are, are taking advantage of the change and could be the dominant force in the region for some time to come. Talk about that analysis and whether it jibes with your own view. I think that's a plausible trajectory, David, but um, you may be overestimating Iran's strengths because it seems to me that at the core of the weakness of every state in the region, not just the Sunni states, is a crisis of governance and legitimacy. Uh, Jordan is probably the one with the strongest, most resilient domestic political compact, but they are struggling as well and will struggle more in the future. I mean, it's it seems to me heroic that the Jordanians have been able to incorporate the enormous number of Palestinian refugees into the body politic, and now they're looking at a generation of Syrian refugees that they will have to find some political accommodation for. They have also managed to defang the Muslim Brotherhood and bring it into Parliament and, and to routine political processes. Most other states in the region, I think including Iran, have failed at that kind of legitimating political processes. And, and that makes governments very brittle and therefore vulnerable to the kind of mischief that the Iranians are making, but also just to the corrosion of public trust and strength and, and success stories for countries. I think that, to me, is a bigger... Uh, source of fragility than the than the sectarian split, which has been the sectarian split has been so much energized by the behavior of the Saudis and the Iranians. They they have they have made political crises into religious crises in the region. David, you know I think Corey's gotten to the core problem here of the the mystery of Iran over these next fifteen years. The oil price decline that hurts the Saudis hurts the Iranians 
just as much, if not more. The sanctions, while they're going to come off, are not going to come off instantly. It's going to be a ways back. Uh, They're going to discover that they've got their own problems of overreach a little bit here. They're stretched pretty thin. Their goods force, while effective as they have been in Iraq and in Syria, uh, it's going to be a stretch keeping that going for a sustained period of time. So um, I don't think that I would run immediately to the thought that they're going to emerge from this a big winner. I think there are some things that they can do strategically that will help them out. They Somehow or another, the supreme leader has got to buy off the IRGC, the uh, uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, for the fact that he took away um, their biggest toy for 15 years. The uh, nuclear program will be essentially frozen. So they're going to have to take out their energies either in supporting the kind of terrorism that you discussed before and Hezbollah or putting it into new ventures like cyber, which is something that they can actually go use. And they have used. They've used against the Saudis. They've used against American banks. They even used against the Sands Casino in Las Vegas, which shows you that they can strike right at the heart of American capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, – we have I one party in this country that is heavily focused on the casino industry. They've got a candidate from the casino industry, and one of their principal funders is from the casino <laughs> industry. So they know what they're doing. And it was his casino. Right. <laughs> Are we confident we can attribute that to the Iranians, though, rather than an American domestic source for the attack? The Sands Casino uh, attack? Um, I'm joking. <laughs> there, there, are all, there are all kinds of possibilities of Americans who would definitely want to go do that. But that one happened. The evidence is pretty good that it was Iranian. Um, so uh, I think you're going to see the Iranians try to go exercise their power in some other places. This takes you to the second part of, of what I was going to describe, which is we now have to see what the implementation phase of the nuclear deal looks like, which could also play into each one of these factors. So Where we are on this is that by mid-October, President Obama is going to have to sign the papers that say the sanctions are lifted, but they don't actually lift until the Iranians do the things they say they're going to do, mothball the centrifuges, ship 98 percent of their fuel out of the country. And my guess is that's going to all take the Iranians a lot longer than they think it's going to take them. And that's going to create a short-term big political problem for President Rouhani because he's got an election coming up and he's got to show the Iranian people that they're getting the benefits of sanctions relief when that sanctions relief may not have yet started. Okay. Um, we're, we're, We're getting a picture here of Iran that does face some challenges. Uh, But we also have some other things that are cutting in Iran's favor. Um, uh, Recently, for example, the Russians have taken a more assertive stance in Syria. Uh, Russia has collaborated closely with the Iranians uh, in other ways, selling them weapons, uh, 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 selling uh, or supporting them in Iraq against ISIS. Is there the possibility that one of the ways that Iran can extend their influence and deliver some progress that might have domestic political benefits as well uh, through diplomacy and through these alliances such as the one that they've announced uh, recently with uh, or uh, not an alliance per se, but a kind of a intelligence sharing coalition with Russia, 
Syria and Iraq, Rosa. Sure, sure. And, and this is, you know, part of the further evidence that they're, they're not remotely crazy. You know, they may think, they, they may say that we're still the great Satan and so forth, but they're perfectly happy to work with other Satan-ish characters when it's convenient to them. Um, uh, I think that the, the willingness uh, of, of the Russians to flout international opinion and carry on with these arrangements with Iran, the willingness of the Chinese in many similar situations to do the same, uh, not, only, not only in the Iranian context, but with other countries that are relative pariahs, you know, it creates a real opportunity for those countries. It creates a sort of alternative sphere of power. In many ways, it does. It is reminiscent of Cold War era block development, um, you know, which, again, is, is not inherently necessarily such a bad thing. It depends what, what gets done with that, that power. But, but I think that the Iranians uh, will, you know, they will not only look to those who have stood by them or semi-stood by them during the last decade or so, but, but you know, I think some of the European states are going to be absolutely happy to get in on the act economically when it's convenient for them, and that's going to help Iran, too. Well, it took the French about three days after the deal was signed <laughs> to show up with their first commercial uh, mission there. And, uh, uh, you know, the Russians are clearly in. The Chinese see no reason not to resume buying oil at these bargain prices. So um, that's all going to create an additional difficulty for the United States, which is the snapback provisions of the uh, agreement, which basically say if Iran violates these agreements, sanctions snap back in place, there will be huge vested interests in making sure those sanctions do not go back in place. So everybody who's doing business with Iran is going to become part of a constituency to make sure that whatever small amount of cheating is dealt with in a non-sanctioned method. Remember back in the 80s and 90s when, when various uh, Washington consensus uh, uh, was that uh, Countries that had McDonald's never fought with each other. Maybe that's what we need to do. We just need to. We just need to shove a McDonald's into well, Tehran. They, Everything's they, going to be have, fine. They have I mean, a kind of a ersatz McDonald's already <laughs> in downtown Tehran. But Corey, as you look at this with a little bit of uh, kind of uh, uh, perspective, that one can only get there in the sun-drenched uh, campus at Stanford. Um, where everything in the real world seems far, far away. The geopolitical context of the Middle East does seem to be changing, not just because Iran is up and its adversaries are down, not just because the U.S. is leaning away, but also because Russia is leaning in, because China is the number one or number two trading partner of Israel, Pakistan, Saudi, or Iran, because China played a big role in this Iran deal, um, because they've been playing kind of footsie with the Russians and the Iranians with regard to Syria. Um, it sounds like more Russia, more China, more Iran, a little bit less of the Sunnis, weak Egypt, U.S. leaning away, Europe with problems at home and not too inclined to get involved. It, you know, it's not exactly Sykes-Picot, but it's a different uh, sort of international set of spheres of influence. What do you think? But, but before I engage that, let me say, I think you actually have it backwards on Stanford versus elsewhere, which is that we are the reality. I knew this was coming, You Corey. guys are the imaginary <laughs> sphere. You're the virtual reality wow. that we look at through 
through our glasses. So just so so I understand this correctly, the rest of the world is just something that Stanford is imagining. Yes, that's right. Or it's something that Silicon Valley <laughs> can Silicon sell Valley to. Is, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a creation yeah. of you our. You know, when you put on your Google virtual. glasses, you can't see us at all. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the way we the, want the rest it. Of the, the rest of the world is a market for iPhones. So. <laughs> I do think that that all of those are individually big shifts. The the Russians playing a weak hand so aggressively. You know, I I think the Russian reorientation that is that they have made a determination that cannot be successful on Western terms, and so they're going to reject the metric, and they are going to probe our weaknesses probe our hypocrisies, probe the places where we're, we are making the pretense of involvement and interest but don't actually want to do anything, and capitalize on that for their advantage. I think we're probably underestimating the willingness of our adversaries to collaborate with each other and how the cumulative effect of that is actually quite daunting for American interests in the world, not just in the Middle East. Uh, and the other element that I would add, in addition to Russian aggressiveness, Chinese, at least, um, soft uh, support, Iranian uh, assertiveness, and American withdrawal from the region, is also that uh, there is a military aspect to this as well. And we are incurring an enormous amount of risk internal to the American military by virtue of sequestration, by virtue of not taking war fighting particularly seriously, by virtue of uh, an acquisitions process that is such a ball and chain shackled to the ankle of our military that we are losing our technological dominance, not just in one or two areas, in a wide variety of areas. And that's even before we get to David Sanger's expertise of cyber. I, I think there is the potential for the United States to get a rude surprise because we continue to salve ourselves by saying that we're the world's strongest military power and a technological innovator compared to none, when in fact others have been chipping away at that, in part by virtue of their own success and in part by virtue of the the feet we keep shooting ourselves in with sequestration and with our lack of seriousness about some of this stuff. Seems like a serious set of issues, Rosa. And, you know, you, you, you get the sense of it in a variety of different ways. You know, think about the case of John Boehner. The Speaker of the House. I don't want to think about well, well, yeah, <laughs> but you know, he's, he's he's the Speaker of the House. He's arguably um, the second most powerful man in the United States of America, and his job is so lousy that he wants to quit. You know that it's you know he's the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world. Thinks this environment is so toxic. Yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. Well, he's he's right. Uh, he's not right about many things, but he's right about that. And and and, you know, I think I think sequestration is is the least of the military's problems in some ways. It's it's, it's a one of many symptoms of a much broader problem that relates, both to the toxic and dysfunctional environment on the hill, where we have a 
uh, congressional committee architecture that is is archaic, doesn't work, doesn't make any particular sense anymore, but because no one is willing to give up their seniority as committee chairs and so forth, we, we seem to be unable to change uh, the ways, you know, even more deeply, obviously, the, the structure of Senate representation, the structure of congressional districts means that it's very hard to make budgetary reforms. It's hard to stop spending money on stupid defense-related projects and start spending it on good ones and ones that we may need, partly because some of the skills that we may need are not ones that are going to accrue to the financial benefit of particular uh, congressional districts, whereas some of the stupid ones do accrue to the financial benefit of particular districts. But that's only a piece of the problem. If I mean, if we want to shift it all to Corey's broader point about uh, lack of military readiness, um, you know, the, but the reason I say things like sequestration are the least of the problems is, is uh, it's not, it's not, we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode of this podcast, uh, it's not particularly clear that we know what we want our military to do. It's not clear that we have the recruitment uh, mechanisms, the training and education mechanisms, the internal personnel policies, much less, as Corey mentioned, the acquisition policies, et cetera, to begin to think about reshaping the military to face the kinds of challenges that are increasingly coming along the pike. And cyber is obviously uh, an example where partly because we are confused and we have uh, allowed much of many of the civilian agencies of the U.S. government to atrophy to a significant degree that cyber has become to a significant extent a, a military uh, domain. We see it as a military domain. But in a lot of ways, the military is one of the agencies of the U.S. government is probably least able to attract the kinds of people who have and will have the expertise that is most needed. That could change. I mean, there's there's I'm always saying to <laughs> in my in my role as minor prophet of doom, I'm always saying to my military friends, you know, God did not create the military personnel system. God did not create the military training system. God did not create the geographic combatant command structure. You know, humans created these for reasons that made sense, uh, but that don't make that much sense anymore. And, and, and it's, it's remarkably difficult, however, to sort of shake up this incredibly atrophied bureaucracy in order to get the people and the skill sets that we need. And that's not fundamentally about money. You know, that, that, that stupid and cross-the-board budget cuts don't make that any easier thinking through those questions. But fundamentally, that, that's, that's about internal culture. That's about bureaucratic resistance to change, both inside the military and the Defense Department and on the Hill. Well, look, so, you know, we've got about f five minutes left in this particular episode. And I'd like to, in keeping with the thought at the beginning, look ahead Look ahead at the, let's just say the next 16 months, the remainder of the Obama administration in this region. The Iran nuclear deal will be there, probably their biggest foreign policy achievement uh, for the eight years of the Obama administration. It has a lot of merits. It has reduced a type of risk. Meanwhile, the U.S. has political dysfunction. It's got problems within its own military. The Russians are moving in. We've talked about the Chinese. The, we've talked about the balance between the Shia and the Sunni in the region. What can we expect over the next 16 months? A rush by opportunists like Putin and the Iranians to say, hey, the Obama fire sale on geopolitical space is going on. Let's move in before somebody more serious gets here. What would that look like? You know, I think we've already seen what that's going to look like. And I'm, I'm not sure that uh, you're going to see more than just incremental changes in that in the next 16 months. 
uh, in part because we're getting past that moment where the president can do any new initiatives. As you suggested, the Iran nuclear deal was probably it. Mideast peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians are not happening on this watch. It's breaking news out, out here. It's going to uh, come as a shock to all of our sophisticated listeners. That's right. Um, uh, the um, administration is about to go submit, put together its last budget. So um, stupid as a lot of the military spending has been, which is to say in the wrong places and for the wrong things, this is going to be their last shot at changing that. And the fact of the matter is Congress isn't going to do anything until you have a new president. And when you have a new president, Congress may not do anything. You remember that the the big, the two big pushes to get this problem solved came when Don Rumsfeld came in in the early days of the Bush administration before 9-11. And he actually had some of the right ideas about what needed to change in the Pentagon. They all went away on September 11, 2001. Uh, and the second moment came when uh, President Obama uh, left Bob Gates, the, the only holdover uh, uh, member of the Bush cabinet, who stayed on to uh, go work on uh, getting Americans out of Iraq and Afghanistan. But also, when you go back and read his memoirs, which were probably the best memoirs of Washington uh, uh, life in recent times, uh, makes the point that we've failed on two major um, elements. The first is we failed to crack this congressional system that keeps you from spending on what you need to spend on instead of on what's being built in each congressional district. And the defense contractors did a brilliant job of spreading their work among the, def among the congressional districts to make sure that was the case. And the second thing we have failed on is having a good warning of where our next conflict is coming. If you think back to World War II forward, only in the case of Vietnam, I think, could you argue that a year before American troops were committed, was there active discussion in the United States that you might have American troops committed in the next year in some part of the world? Did not have that before Pearl Harbor, certainly didn't have it before the Korean War, didn't have it before Johnson sent troops to Haiti, didn't have it before the Persian Gulf War. Uh, and uh, and so you've had time, and of course, didn't have it before Afghanistan. So you've had time and time again. So if Corey is right, and I suspect she is on this, that we're in for a rude surprise, it's probably going to be in an area, cyber is one possibility, but there are several others, where we have wildly underinvested in the past decade while we were doing the other two wars. Corey, over the next 17 months, uh, eight or 16 months, you know, where do you think the risk of that may be the greatest? And by the way, parenthetically, I can't help but note that there you had in the midst of Mr. Sanger's most recent uh, uh, disquisition, uh, New York Times revisionism on Rumsfeld. I was just wondering how you felt about that as well. <laughs> well I Donald Rumsfeld, man of the people. I said the first nine months were actually pretty creative. I, I didn't then discuss the next five years, did I, Corey? <laughs> I do think that a lot of the a lot of the changes that Rumsfeld came into the Pentagon wanting to bring about um, look a lot more sensible than they did when he was making the arguments for them. <laughs> that I think his ineffectual management style made poisonous a lot of the things that we ought to have profitably done in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Okay, and what about the next 16 months? 
I I agree with David all the way down the line on that, especially that, you know, creative adversaries probe for our weaknesses. And we spend a lot of time these days celebrating what we're good at instead of in paranoiac style searching for our weaknesses that can be exploited. And I feel like we're overdue for a major red team looking at that because, for example, I mean, smart move by the Russians to move in and shore up Bashar al-Assad. I doubt we imagined he would do that. So, Rosa, we're looking for somebody paranoid, and therefore I turn to you. (laughs) (laughs) You know me. If I weren't so lazy, I would be stockpiling canned goods and bottled water. So with that with that outlook, giving a this is to wrap up this particular episode, what 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 worries you specifically over the next sixteen months in this? Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think it's likely. I don't think it's impossible, but I don't think it's likely that we're going to have some cataclysmic war. Start. I don't think anybody's going to nuke us. I don't think it's terribly likely that there will be a terrorist attack on the scale of nine eleven. Uh, you know, any of these things could happen. I don't think they're likely. I think David is right. We're going to see we're going to see more of the same, only more and more of the same in the next 16 to 18 months, uh, depending on who becomes the next president. But probably, frankly, anyone will will see more and more of the same after that, too. I think that the 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 threats that we now face and I'm I'm more skeptical than than some of my colleagues about the likelihood of overt interstate conflict resurfacing in the in the near near term future five to ten years um, I think it's going to be you know the 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 thousand cuts uh, is going to be the biggest threat we face it's not going to be the massive cyber attack that brings down the Hoover Dam and the New York Stock Exchange at the same time it's going to be lots and lots of little little pinpricks here and there that will collectively make it harder, more costly, and less efficient to do business. It's going to be lots of little pinprick terrorist attacks that make it harder to travel, harder to do business. I I think that's what we're going to see. I don't see why any other power has any particular incentive for all the reasons that we've mentioned, including that we still do have an unrivaled military capacity for destruction, just straightforward blowing stuff up. to challenge us in a direct way. I think what we're going to see is all these little things where there's just enough deniability, whether it's Russia or China or somebody else, you know, there's going to be just enough deniability that we're not really going to know what to do or be able there, to There's act. a lot of space between pinpricks and, sh- and short-of-war operations. So I would say that the Chinese attack on uh, the Office of Personnel Management and being able to pull up that much data that quickly is more than a pinprick, but not something that's going to force anybody to retaliate. And that, uh, the subject of cyber and cyber threats, will be the subject of our next podcast episode. So we hope that you will join us for that. I think that we've summed this up in a way that, that I personally agree with. I think that, you know, if we are too powerful for people to go to war against, then our enemies will find ways to make gains without going to war against us. And what they have done is find ways to uh, chip off bits of countries, gain influence, take advantage of voids that are out there 
to incrementally gain an influence. And what you might see over a protracted period without a war is nonetheless a decline in our influence and a gain in the influence of those who are troublesome to us. And I might add, in conclusion, you know, in the past, in the in the recent past, there was a bipartisan report from Congress that noted that in 2015, while we were focused elsewhere, ISIS grew to be the largest most dangerous terrorist organization in the history of the world. The cyber threat grew. Indeed, it grew even as we negotiated with Iran from places like Iran as well as China and Russia and elsewhere. Um, And our global standing shifted quite a bit while we were focused on this one deal. And so perhaps in the wake of the Iran deal, uh, one of the good things that can come out of it in addition to whatever good it brought, and that was considerable, is that we can regain our perspective on the whole range of global uh, interests and threats that are out there. We'll We'll talk about... Yes? Even though I'm the paranoid one, the designated paranoid one, I think we need to close by looking on the bright side. I think the uh, OPM hack and the the theft of uh, the personal information of so many people, including myself, the bright side of that is I, and this is a message to the Chinese, I, I expect that I shouldn't have to apply for a visa next time I go to China. The whole bureaucrat, bureaucracy of travel should be much simpler because they've already got my they, information. they've already got your, you know, they, <laughs> and if you lose your data, they're your They'll backup be, system. Exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they've got your number. We've got your number. I want to thank David Sanger of the New York Times. I want to thank Rosa Brooks of um, Georgetown University. And I want to thank Corey Shockey of Stanford University and the Hoover Institution Uh, in whose imagination we all exist Um, uh, as as lively figments. We hope that you will join us all again for the next of the Editor's Roundtables podcast. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I've been your host, the program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.